0: This episode is dedicated to Nathan, Yal Krebs, and Elizabeth Nicholson for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at code ficom slash pod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, You're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you.
1: This is Sam. This is Corey.
2: And this is Fight Study.
1: On this fight study, we have boxing writer and analyst Corey Erdman to talk to us about Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder three. Welcome to the show, Corey. First of all,
3: I'm, uh, I'm honored and,
1: and surprised
3: that you'd find me uh, important enough to be on, on the same show as people like Fallon and, uh, and Anna have been on. Uh, I'm honored that you would, you would choose me to, to be on this episode.
1: <laughs> Since this is your first time on the show, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into boxing journalism?
3: Sure. So I uh, I grew up loving boxing. Uh, my family, uh, I don't come from a fighting family, but my grandfather was close friends with Arnie Beam, who was Lennox Lewis's trainer. I grew up in, uh, in Kitchener, Ontario, and uh, they just became friends just independent of boxing. But because of that, I was kind of around a boxing gym from a young age and took uh, a real interest in boxing history and, and in boxing. Uh, you know, I got in the boxing gym myself, along with the other sports that I played, and it was just always something that I was very passionate and and studious about. And uh, you know, I, I guess the the quick story of how my my career evolved is that basically I, I was 18 and I was in school for political science. Initially, I thought I was going to be a politician. I thought. <laughs> you no, know, i'm gonna'm gonna I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go through school and then I'm going to be uh, a politician in the NDP, which is like our, our socialist party here in uh, in Canada. I thought that's where I was going, but when you're eighteen, you know you start to get a little bit antsy and you know I, I didn't feel um, I wasn't particularly inspired in the brief period of time that I spent in university, but I felt that I was capable at that point, uh, you know, I was naive, but I thought, Hey, you know, I think I'm a good enough writer to just start my career right now. Um, and I kind of wasn't wrong. I, I sent a story into a magazine called the hockey news, um, just uh, unprompted sent it in because of course this is how things work. And before long, I was at the hockey news on kind of like a a quasi internship program and writing some, excuse me, paid pieces. And then from there, about a year later, I, Was uh, given a show on Sirius XM as a radio host. And through that, then I started getting opportunities on the air and I called my first boxing match, uh, my first card, when I was about 18 or 19. And as I was doing that, I was also freelancing. I started uh, writing about boxing for the sporting news. And then from there, kind of my writing and commentary career just kind of kept going, um, adjacent to what I was doing uh, as a radio host and as a, a television presenter, just talking about kind of general sports things. But I always had my eye on trying to make it in in boxing, because I felt that that was what I was most passionate about. Um, and based on just kind of a whole life of studying the sport, I thought that, hey, I'm, I'm young enough to be intriguing, maybe to outlets, but at the same time, I have um, a lifetime of knowledge that I'm taking into this that maybe other people didn't have. Uh, and before long, uh, which is where I'm at right now, I basically solely make my living uh, either talking about or writing about boxing so it's been that's that's the, uh, the the short form of the story of how i got where i am
1: so can you give us some background on how this trilogy started in the first place
3: right so so deontay wilder uh held the wbc's version of the heavyweight title for uh for quite some time uh and in 2018 he fought tyson fury for the first time and fury at coming into that fight um, was basically coming off, uh, an extended retirement effectively. He, he fell into a deep depression. Um, he had issues with with drug and alcohol abuse. He was about 400 pounds. And then in 2018, he came back, he took two quick kind of stay busy fights or, you know, fights to shake off the rust, lost a tremendous amount of weight, uh, and then was put in there with Deontay Wilder. And I think the, the assumption at that point was that, you know, here was a victory for Wilder against someone who, uh, was the previous lineal heavyweight champion, but wasn't in the best physical condition at that point. How long was he out for? So he was away from the sport for the better part uh, a little over three years. Um, he beat Vladimir Klitschko for the heavyweight title. And then after that, uh, he was gone and we didn't see him again until 2018 when he had those two fights. So, by the time he came back against Wilder I think people viewed him as a like a a feel good story but I don't think that people expected him to beat Deontay Wilder in that fight and he didn't but many people thought he deserved the decision on the scorecards a lot of people remember kind of a, a clip that went around of Fury getting knocked down in the 12th round of that fight and he kind of sits up like the Undertaker it's sort of this uh, this heroic moment um and then they come back and fight for a second time in February of 2020, and Fury just demolishes Wilder. And then we got to this third fight, which we also—there there were a lot of things that happened, and I may be skipping ahead here on the, on the timeline. But effectively, Wilder had to go to arbitration to ensure that this third fight happened, because Fury was under the impression that there was not a rematch clause and that he could go ahead and face Anthony Joshua. There were rumors that the two of them were going to fight in Saudi Arabia at some point this year. But Wilder said, no, I'm entitled to a rematch. It went to arbitration. The judge ruled in favor of Wilder and his team. And then the third fight came about. So there was, you know, it, for a period of time, this almost felt like a fight that, that there were some people who felt that this was a, a redundant fight to have but then you know we turned out to get a classic anyway um so you know people were kind of uh vindicated who were on the other side of that but at the same time we did get the same results
1: when you're a big name prize fighter like tyson fury you have a big team you have high paid people around you how did they miss that clause (laughs) Yeah,
3: i have the same question um it's I don't know if they felt that they could take another fight in the interim, or if they genuinely felt that there was no rematch clause at all. Um, really, I, I'm not sure what the thinking was there. But um, at that point, you know, Fury and his supporters kind of felt—I don't know if they, they felt spited. You know, they, they almost felt like, oh, like Wilder kind of pulled some legal tricks to make this happen. But, you know, an independent judge ruled that he was entitled to this fight. So uh, legally, he was entitled to this fight. I don't think that's really up for up for debate at this point.
1: Now, heading into the first fight, there was also the story about Fury's young coach. Yeah. So uh,
3: around that time, um, again, we mentioned Fury's sort of uh, bouts with depression and kind of the, the dark period that he went through in his life. One of the people that he credited with getting him out of that period was Ben Davison. And Ben Davison is, is the young trainer that, uh, that you're referring to, who has now become kind of one of the, the trainers who are uh, in vogue in boxing. And uh, Ben basically got him focused on boxing again. Fury kind of credits, with, credits him with helping him get out of that hole and staying focused on boxing. But um, Fury did eventually move on from Ben Davison. Ben no longer trains Fury. He now trains uh, with Sugar Hill, who is the, the nephew of the, uh, the late great Emmanuel Stewart. Um, but Fury and Davison don't have any animosity or anything like that. They just, they, they don't work together anymore. But, um, Davison, you know, in in that time, basically what Fury was saying is that Davison was the one who was able to, um, just make sure that he continued training and stayed in the gym because the way that Fury describes it is that if, if Fury is not constantly training, that he will, he will spiral once again, that he's kind of walking this tightrope all the time where if he's not 100% focused on boxing, bad things are going to happen. Uh, and Davidson was kind of the one that sort of helped him realize that, in his words. Um, but yeah, again, the two have moved on, and now it's Sugar Hill, who's, who's in the corner of, uh, of Fury, and they seem to be quite a pairing as well. So uh, the trainer change didn't, didn't seem to make any, uh, any difference for Tyson.
1: Can you give us a little bit of analysis of how the fight went? because you gave us the background that a lot of people didn't think Tyson Fury was going to look that good because he was off. He had ballooned up so big. There was no way to come back from something like that. So how did the fight go? Basically,
3: that fight was Fury, for the most part, outboxing Deontay Wilder and then Wilder knocking him down in the ninth and the twelfth when he almost knocked him out out, uh, before that kind of heroic sit up. But Fury showed which, which is sort of what's really interesting with him he he just has he really is a a special boxer in that he's he's a 6 foot 9 giant who visually doesn't look like he's in tremendous shape you know he's kind of he's kind of fleshy if you just saw him you know around the pool let's say if he weren't 6 foot 9 you wouldn't think that this was this was anyone of of note let alone um the best heavyweight boxer in the world, but he it really is uh an extraordinary boxer and an extraordinary mover for his size. And so for the, the vast majority of that fight, Fury um was was really comprehensively outboxing Wilder. Uh the judges didn't maybe didn't give him enough credit on the scorecards, I felt. Um, but he suffered two knockdowns, one in the ninth, one in the twelfth. Um, and somehow it, it's, we always watch that clip of Fury just getting up, which is heroic and and kind of um magical on its own, but after that, fury doesn't just get up but he he takes control of the fight all over again he He sort of has this uh you know i, I wrote yesterday that he kind of has um not just recuperative abilities but he's almost emboldened by knockdowns or or woken up by them in in some sense. we saw that in the most recent fight as well. Um, you know, he he really is like a like a professional wrestler uh, but in the ring in, in that way.
1: Because it ended up in a draw, was it understood right away that they had to run it back? You mentioned the changes that Fury's camp made going to uh, Sugar Hill. So, can you tell us also about that gym, what that gym represents, the style they come from, and if there were any changes made by Wilder's camp before the second fight?
3: Yeah, so Wilder's, the changes to Wilder's camp didn't happen until after the second fight. And we'll get to that in a second, but on, on, on Fury's front, um, it was understood after that fight that we needed to do it again. But I think that, that Fury uh, around that time, you know, he also signs a deal with, with top rank. And at at that point, he still technically was the, the lineal heavyweight champion, as we understand it in in boxing is kind of a, the man who beats the man is the lineal heavyweight champion. And when he left the sport after beating Vladimir Klitschko in 2015, of course, nobody defeated him. So the other heavyweights kind of took the mantle as, um, you know, the the most decorated heavyweights in the world at that time, guys like Wilder and Anthony Joshua. But it is true that Fury hadn't been beaten. He was still technically the the lineal champion. So he sort of utilize that to take two fights after the Wilder fight uh, against Tom Schwartz and Otto Wallin, uh, the latter of which was a very tough fight. Uh, he had a lot of difficulty with Wallin, had to fight through a cut. It, you know, he was really badly marked up in that fight, but uh, I think he needed like 50 stitches or something above his right eye uh, after that fight. Um, but somewhere in there, I think it was after the Schwartz fight, he links up with, with Sugar Hill and Sugar Hill, as I mentioned, is the, the nephew of Emmanuel Stewart, who's regarded as one of the great uh, trainers in boxing history, uh, and also the figurehead of the Cronk Gym in Detroit, Michigan, which uh, was also the gym that produced uh, Thomas Hearns uh, and many great fighters, and is kind of lauded as a factory of big punchers. And Stewart uh, always kind of advocated for finding finding openings for knockouts sometimes at your own expense and he was particularly good at training tall fighters and getting them to make use of their height and sugar hill learned from emmanuel and imparted a lot of those things on fury and what we saw in the the second wilder fight i mentioned fury as being you know a, a really extraordinary shifty boxer when he wants to be well in in fury sugar hill saw something different he saw a, a giant of a man who, if he wanted to, could walk to a fighter, really walk people down with his jab. You know, he has a, a longer reach than anyone in the sport. Uh, and, and so he started using his gifts in a different way. And in that second fight against Deontay Wilder, um, really put a beating on him and just walked him down, really the entire fight. So we saw a, a different, uh, different utilization of Fury's gifts in that second fight. And that's attributed to, to Sugar Hill. How
1: long did that second fight go?
3: So the second fight, uh, Fury stopped him in the seventh round. Uh, And that's when the changes to Wilder's camp happened. Because Wilder, who at that time uh, was coached by Mark Breland, who himself is a a legendary fighter as well, one of the greatest amateur fighters uh, of all time, uh, and and an extraordinary pro as well, he felt that Breland should not have thrown in the towel in in that fight. Uh, Breland pulled Wilder out of that fight, and Wilder um, was... Furious. He thought that he, sh- number one, w- was capable of winning a fight so long as he can stand on his two feet, that he's capable of winning a fight because he can turn things around with his dynamic right hand. Um, you know, he's one of the hardest punchers in boxing. He can turn a fight around with that shot. But he also felt that if he couldn't have done that, that he wanted to have, in his words, gone, be- been carried out on his shield. And he felt that Breland didn't give him that opportunity. I think most rational people. In watching that fight, believe that Breland did the right thing, but Wilder felt that he ought to have been given the opportunity um, to at least to to see what would have happened. Um, And he did get that opportunity (laughs) on Saturday in the third fight.
1: Before we get into the third fight, was it immediately after the fight that Wilder fired Mark Breland? Because wasn't it back and forth that first he was going to fire him, that he changed his mind? What was happening there?
3: Yeah there there was some back and forth. I can't remember the exact timeline, but yeah, I think there was there was a period of time where it was just him kind of criticizing Breeland, but he hadn't formally fired him. Um and then there were some other conspiracies there. There were there were allegations of of fury, uh, t- you know, tampering with his gloves or loading his gloves. Uh there were there were allegations that he was poisoned, that his water bottle was poisoned. There were, there were a lot, a lot of things going on, a lot of unsubstantiated rumors that I think for Deontay, he almost needed to believe these things because other, the alternative was that he just got beaten by a better fighter and he'd, he'd never experienced that before. So um, I'm not saying that any of those conspiracies were good or that he should have fired Breland, but you can understand how a high-level athlete, particularly one in a sport, where it's really just about, you know, it's this, this macho kind of physical battle. Uh, I can understand why he would want to believe those things, if, uh, if, if that makes sense.
1: Well, even after the first fight, he didn't believe he lost. Right, right. He was on social media or in interviews saying the count was off, that he should have won. And also he talked about even then, even though it was a draw, that there was some voodoo stuff happening, you know, because... <laughs> yeah fury is the gypsy king that they were doing some gypsy magic on him he was speculating all kinds of stuff like that so then do you think because he thought he really did win the first fight that he didn't need to make any changes going into the second fight other than maybe gain a little bit of weight
3: you're talking about heading into the second fight
1: right yeah yeah so because he felt like the count was slow he won anyway and actually, he should have fought better because maybe, you know, there was some voodoo on him. (laughs) Right, yeah. Why change anything, right? So it looked like watching the fight, the second fight, that Wilder believed he was just going to do the same thing he did the first fight, but this time it was going to work, whereas Fury came in with a different game plan.
3: Yeah, I I think that's exactly it. Yeah, I I think that even, you know, Deontay's uh, most vocal supporters wouldn't argue that, you know, he made any serious adjustments to uh, his operations heading into that second fight, like I, I do think that it's it's sometimes um, people go a little too far in suggesting that Deontay is just kind of is fully one dimensional. Like, yes, it, his main weapon is landing a big right hand, but of course, there's some nuance in in how he sets it up. You know, he's not just you know, you know, just flailing away in the ring. There's something that that goes into that. Now, he didn't make the kind of adjustments in going into the second fight that um, he did heading into the third, Um, but there's a little more to Wilder than just a guy who's just kind of clubbing away in there. But you're right. It was, you know, I I think Fury um, correctly assumed that Wilder was going to do the same thing and did something entirely different, and Wilder did not have any answers for that in the second fight.
1: So were people really then more psyched about Anthony Joshua versus Tyson Fury and were kind of bummed that they were seeing this third fight Or do you think there was some excitement building up to this third fight?
3: Yes, I I think there was a little bit of both. I think initially boxing, you know, as this like it's not an an amorphous thing, but I'll use the term just in general. But I think boxing wanted to see that super fight between Fury and Joshua, because I think um, it, it felt like the biggest possible event that the sport could put on. And so I think there was some disappointment that it wasn't going to happen because fights of that magnitude just they don't come around that often and there always seems to be something that gets in the way of them so there was some disappointment i think in the beginning particularly if you were uh you know a fervent wilder supporter or if you just had you know kind of no skin in the game but the what's interesting about this rivalry and and i i haven't seen this in quite a long time in boxing these (laughs) the the supporters of wilder and fury like I haven't seen that kind of emotion on either side uh, in terms of fan bases really. I, I haven't seen that in, in a very, very long time, where the like fans of Fury and fans of Wilder really it's it became their identity to the point that the fan bases hated one another. So even if you were <laughs> even if you were kind of temporarily upset that, oh, we didn't get Fury Joshua. You got sucked right back into this feud, you know, because you wanted to see these guys fight one another, and you wanted like something absolutely conclusive to happen. So, yeah, it might have been kind of temporary, but I think just the, the animosity that was there between these two fighters, and and just the, the vitriol online between the fans of either fighter, just it, it just sucked everyone back in. And so, and and you saw that in the, in the energy in the arena on on Saturday. It was it was it was it was something
1: different. Now, for this fight, Fury was still with the Kronk Gym. Tell us about changes for Wilder, because Mark Breeland wasn't there anymore. So who is the trainer going into this fight? What were some of the changes made? And even physically, what were some of the changes made?
3: Yeah, well, physically, uh, it, it was very noticeable that uh, Deontay had put on um, quite a bit of muscle uh, heading into that fight. And he was actually, I, I think, only about maybe six or seven pounds heavier than he was for the last fight, but there were noticeable changes to his physique. He was a lot more muscular. Um, he looked a lot sturdier. He looked a, a lot heavier. Um, he had clearly been, been hitting the weights, uh, and he was with a new trainer. As you mentioned, uh, he fired Mark Breland, and he hired Malik Scott as his head trainer. And Malik Scott uh, is a former opponent of WoW. He had stopped <laughs> uh, Malik Scott in, in one round uh, back in, I believe this is in 2015, but Malik and him were, and they have been very close friends for a long time. Malik was a relatively successful pro who was always kind of lauded for his boxing ability. He was always known as uh, a heavyweight with a very high IQ. Uh, he was a guy that a lot of heavyweights liked to bring in as a sparring partner throughout the years. Guys like Lennox Lewis used him and Vladimir Klitschko and, uh, Fury even used him. Uh, and broke his eardrum in in, in one training camp as well Um, so he was always kind of regarded as a good boxing mind but he had never really been um, if he had cornered someone before it was on a very low level for for all intents and purposes he'd never trained anyone before but Deontay respected him as a boxing mind they were close friends and he installed him as his new trainer and with the understanding that he would not throw in the towel under any circumstances <laughs> coming into that fight. So that was the one caveat that Deontay had. Um, but th- I think the changes they tried to make, you saw some of them in in this fight. Um, Deontay tried to jab to the body a little bit more. He tried to box a little bit more. His posture in the ring, um, he stood a little bit taller. Um, he held his right hand uh, a lot more kind of fervently to his ear, you know, he could, Malik Scott kept telling him, you know, hold the phone, hold the phone. You know, he didn't want to get caught with, with Fury's left hook. He wanted to keep his right hand close to his ear and cocked right to, right to let that shot go. Um, so I did see some, some tactical changes in that camp. Um, and you know, I, I think, I mean, we'll get into it as we talk a- about the fight, but the fact that Malik didn't throw in the towel in this fight, you can go both ways on it because the fact that he didn't throw in the towel is what made this fight great. But you can also look at that fight objectively and say, oh, there were probably a lot of opportunities where maybe this fight ought to have been stopped, where it would have been better for Deontay's health to have been stopped earlier. But ultimately, this is what Deontay asked for. And ultimately, the fact that he was in the fight I mean, even in the 10th round, after he got knocked down, Deontay landed a big right hand that might've put any other heavyweight on the planet uh, to sleep, but it it wasn't enough to beat Tyson Fury. So he was kind of of vindicated in his assessment that, hey, as long as I'm conscious, I'm still dangerous. He was right. But ultimately, he took a pretty savage beating and, and took a pretty ugly knockout to end the fight.
1: When the fight started, especially round one and continuing for the first couple of rounds, Wilder's pace was so high, so much higher than the previous two fights. Do you think that high pace and a lot of those power shots he was throwing early tired him out and actually maybe he would have been better off pacing himself a little bit more?
3: I I think it's possible, but I also think that, you know, Wilder was looking pretty good in, in the first two rounds his exhaustion or like what we perceive as like him looking tired it also coes it, it coincides with him getting knocked down in round three right so how much of it was him just being exhausted how much of it is him just being discombobulated uh after getting knocked down in round three it's it's, it's tough to say um but i think that you know if you're wilder and you have this this explosive right hand like why not push the pace early and do everything you can to to try and land it? Because you, I think in a general sense, know that if this turns into a boxing match, you're probably not going to beat Tyson Fury. So I, I didn't think it was a bad strategy to try and kind of pick up the tempo the way that he did. He varied his shots a little bit more than than we'd seen in the past. But yeah, it's, it's tough to say whether he was tired or just hurt for uh, for eight rounds, right?
1: Now let's talk about Tyson Fury a little bit for this third fight. And especially some of the rumors I heard going into it. Well, some of them are not rumors, right? We know he had COVID, but the rumors, especially maybe amongst gamblers, was that maybe it had affected him more than we think. There was also some rumors that he wasn't taking this fight very seriously and wasn't training very hard. I heard even a rumor about that maybe one of his kids was sick and uh, his own team had said that he would weigh 300 pounds. And then he came in with a shirt on. And then people were like, oh, my God, he's trying to cover how out of shape he is. And then he came in around the same weight he did last time because now he was wearing more clothes. So you (laughs) take those clothes off. He might have weighed the same as he did. What was happening there?
3: You never quite know with Tyson. I mean, this is I mean, Tyson is just such a bizarre human being. And he says so many things that. I like just can't be substantiated. Uh, but that's kind of what makes him fascinating is this sort of self mythology um, that that he perpetuates. Like, you know, he's said some bizarre things in the past. Like he says that part of his training regimen is soaking his fists in gasoline. Does, <laughs> does he do that? I don't know. You know, like uh, after I think it was after the Ottawa the lean fight, he said that he gave his entire purse to an unhoused person. No one ever followed that. That's, you could never prove that. You know what I mean? Like, like he, I'm sure he did not do that, but he could say it and no one's ever going to find out whether it's true or not, right? These are things that can only happen in boxing because if an athlete in any other sport said that uh, and you, it was found out to be not true, you would you would be rightfully skewered. Um, anyway, back to these, uh, <laughs> these rumors heading into this fight. I think a lot of those were actually true. I mean, mm. uh, Tyson did from what we understand, have COVID. He said he had COVID twice. Uh, when he got COVID the first time, he had only received uh, one shot, uh, you know, one one uh, vaccination shot. He opted not to get the second shot. So he, if, you know, in, in effect, entered this fight unvaccinated. Um, his daughter, from what we understand, um, was dealing with an illness. And he said he only really trained three weeks, or excuse me, six weeks for this training camp and did not He said after the fight, did not have a great training camp. Um, I think that those things are true, but at the same time, a lot of Tyson's again, we go back to his self mythology is selling you on this idea that he was just kind of born to be a fighter, like right out of the womb, and that even if he doesn't train, he can still beat any man alive. So there's always you know a little sprinkle of that when you hear these things from Fury. Like is, is that true, or is he just trying to perpetuate this idea? that he's this sort of supernatural being. But the things that you referenced, like I happen to think that those were true this time
4: around. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly... It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod.
1: What makes this trilogy compelling is how different they all looked in each one of these fights. We already talked about the first two fights. And then we talked about how Wilder looked different for this fight physically, but also stylistically, he came out with a different plan, especially initially, but also Fury looked different. I don't mean physically different per se, but like, you know, even the commentators were talking about that his volume had dropped, he wasn't jabbing as much. And defensively, we didn't see as much defensive movement as we had seen in the maybe the first fight because the second fight, he didn't need to be as defensive. So maybe his defense also looked like this the second fight and we didn't know. But can you speak to us a little bit about how different he looked? He almost did look like he was out of shape.
3: I, I think there was some of that. I also want to believe that uh, I think a lot of this fight on both sides, um, the way that they were fighting really was fueled by emotion. Like I don't, like these... These teams and these fighters really don't like one another, and I think that that Fury, uh, you know, what you're referencing is like we didn't see any of that kind of jittery defensive movement that we, uh, you know, are used to seeing from Fury. We didn't see any of that really in in this third fight. We saw a guy trying to walk a man down to knock him out, and really, really, you know, clobbering him on the inside, really mauling him, leaning on Deontay Wilder. It was just an entirely different approach from him. And and I think that some of that was fueled by just wanting a conclusive ending to this and really not liking the other man across the ring. I, I, I genuinely think that was a factor in this fight.
1: Now, do you think criticisms about Wilder's boxing ability is fair? I know you already touched upon this, but especially his footwork, even Lennox Lewis kept talking about it. But I've even heard boxing reporters and journalists talking about how they're sitting there In his camps, watching him shadow box, watching him spar, and they talk about how it's some of the worst shadow boxing movement sparring they've ever seen. So do you think that's a lot of just hyperbole, or is there just like a little bit of fun amongst these scribes where they like picking on him because he's not perfect as a boxer? Or do you think there is some merit to it, and he's really not that good, especially his footwork, and he just has this monstrous right hand?
3: Yeah, I I think there are elements of everything that you just mentioned there, like Deontay as just if we're talking about what the fundamentals of boxing are and kind of like what we know good boxing to look like, Deontay doesn't do a lot of those things, right? He's like, he's not like if you would probably not show Deontay Wilder to a kid that you're, you know, you're trying to teach the sport to because he can get away with a lot of things because of his big right hand, but also because of his stature and because of his athleticism. So I think Deontay doesn't do a lot of things that are conventionally correct in the way that we know them in, in boxing, but there is still a little bit of nuance. You know, you look back at, uh, you know, say the, the second Luis Ortiz fight. Well, he's losing every round, but he's gradually kind of luring Luis Ortiz into the exact position that he wants him to be in so that he can land that right hand so I think that like the criticism is valid like Deontay is not a particularly technically sound boxer because he also didn't grow up boxing you know he he was of course he went to the Olympics and he had a a very brief amateur career that uh, ended with uh, an Olympic medal but he wasn't he didn't spend his whole life kind of honing his craft in the same way that uh, like a a Tyson Fury did. So he's approaching this as kind of like as an athlete and how can I use the tools that I have to work? And he's, he's gone a long way with it, you know? (laughs) So um, you're, we're, they're never going to turn Deontay Wilder into like a a slick counter puncher. It's just not, that's, it's not going to happen. But he went a long way and has, has gone away. It continues to go a long way. I'm not saying his career is over um, with the tools that he has.
1: Now, were there also any other hijinks leading into this fight? Like, why did Wilder take so long to come out?
3: <laughs> so I have a theory on that. I don't know this to be true. But of course, Deontay Wilder is from Alabama. He's a big Alabama football fan. And that game at that point, the Alabama game, which is a real nail biter, was happening right around the time he was supposed to walk. And it was in like the final four minutes and then the final two minutes. I wouldn't be shocked. This is my conspiracy theory. I think Deontay was just watching the game and waiting <laughs> for <focus on. laughs> I'll add one more conspiracy theory in, into this rivalry.
1: With the fight itself, do you think outside of the knockdowns that he won any of those rounds?
3: Ooh, I, I, yeah, I do think that Wilder, probably round one and two, um, I think he won those rounds. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, definitely the knockdown rounds. And there might have been another one in there. So there you, I mean, you already have three rounds there. So, you know, I'd say at least two, right? And that's just going off of memory. I haven't watched the fight back uh, since I watched it live. But I, I, I think you could maybe give Wilder two or three rounds outside of knockdown rounds.
1: I don't remember. It was like round eight or something where they showed the scores, not the official scores, but the analyst was showing their scores. And it was tied at that point. It was hard to pay attention because it was so aggressive and emotional. So it was hard to keep track of how the rounds were going. Right. But then you saw like one of the rounds was 10-7 and uh, you were like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Right. That hand just equalized it in one round.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, and I what I found so compelling about this fight and, and I wrote about this in in my column that went up today on, on boxing scene as well, is that I can't remember a time where I felt what I was feeling watching that fight, which with regards to Wilder, which was that at the same time, like simultaneously, I was worried for his life while at the same time thinking he could end this fight at any time. And, and that like, I've. I can't think of another example of feeling that way in a fight, which is something that that fighting can can produce that is very special. But seldom do you feel those those two things simultaneously about the same person and that like that energy during the fight. And even if, you know, could you find a better action fight than this in boxing history? Of course, you know, do I think is the greatest uh, heavyweight fight of all time? No, but but sometimes fights are just about what they made you feel. And, and what I felt watching Deontay Wilder in there was unlike, uh, I mean, certainly any fight in recent memory. I'll put it that way.
1: Going back to your feeling, his clunky footwork almost worked to his advantage. And I think it works to his advantage anytime he's hurt because sometimes you're like, is he hurt? Right. Or is that just his normal, awkward walking?
3: Yeah, is that just his gait? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: When you get clocked, you walk like a zombie. But if you walk like a zombie anyway, then how can you really tell when this person is no longer dangerous, right? Right, yeah. And I think that's what we felt watching this. I kept thinking to myself, is he really hurt or is he just moving weird?
3: Yeah, well, and then he would land a right hand and then you're like, oh, no, 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 that, that's just Deontay, he's fine. But then he would get hit while he's moving like that. And you're like, oh, no, like throw in the towel, you know, <laughs> like do end this fight. And it was just, it was the, the pendulum just kept swinging every single time he landed a right hand you're like oh okay maybe i don't have to have sympathy for him yet you know but then he gets brutally knocked out and you're like oh okay yeah this it it was i i wasn't wrong in in what i was feeling i i had a right to be worried
1: because we couldn't judge it based off of how he was moving i guess is my point oftentimes you could tell somebody's hurt by how they're moving yes whereas with this we eventually started keeping track by just accumulated damage just how many punches he was taking
3: yeah well and i i think like you know, his gait was one thing, but I was watching Deontay's face too. And as the round started to go on, and, and especially after um, the knockdown in round 10, you know, Wilder's eyes were swollen. They were starting to kind of droop a little bit. His mouth was hanging open. Like it looked like a fighter who was kind of in, in you know, not to be grim, but like it looked like a fighter who was in mortal danger. And that's what I was watching, you know? And, and yeah, his gait is one thing, but watching his face. And just either like exhaustion or the the, the accumulation of punishment on his face um, was just it was definitely concerning in the moment, <laughs> you know it, it really was
1: the referee was working a lot, but do you think that was necessary for the referee to be that involved, constantly just getting in there
3: yeah I, well, if he hadn't fury is just so big that he could have really leaned on wilder uh, a lot i I, I thought one thing he was doing was when he was separating fighters, he was, he was forcing them back a lot. And Deontay was, one of his strategies, you could tell, is that he was waiting for, for those moments when he and Fury would be broken up and he would almost take like a gather step and load up a right hand. He was waiting for that opportunity again and again and again. And the more space that Russell Mora was giving them, it played into Wilder's advantage. He was looking for that space because he wasn't getting it from Fury. He was leaning on him all the time. So he was waiting for those moments when he would have that one instant to let the right hand go. And so that was kind of helping Wilder a little bit. Ultimately, Fury caught on to that and started doing the same thing, which almost put him in danger because they, they almost had that like, you know, at the end of uh, like Rocky three or whatever, when they're they're both throwing the like a left hand at the same time there were a lot of those moments when both of them were throwing right hands that just missed one another because Fury caught on and he started doing that almost like a a gather step into a right hand and they were both landing them. So yeah, like what I think Russell Mora was, was right to be involved. I think as often as he was, but um, that degree of separation that he was forcing was, was giving Wilder a little bit of an advantage. And and I'm not saying that he was doing that in like a nefarious way, but the way that it worked out was kind of, that those were the main opportunities for Wilder to land his big shot.
1: There was even a moment where they simultaneously threw their right and their right arms got caught against each other. Yes. Yeah. That was,
3: that was at the end of round five. I remember that moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I know the moment you're talking about. Like a collision.
3: Well, it was like, uh, I mean, you're a pro wrestling fan, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, like in pro wrestling, that would be the spot where you both miss the right hand, your, your elbows link, and then it like someone turns into a backslide, yeah. like into a pinning attempt. <laughs> it was just like that, but in, the, in actual boxing.
1: Now, speaking a little bit more about the refereeing, why isn't refereeing and boxing more uniform? You know, like if you watch other sports, I mean, there are bad referees, but in general, a referee is a referee in basketball or football. But in boxing, it really depends on the referee. So why do you think that is?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, number one, there's no like uniform school for referees. And, you know, yeah, a lot of it is just kind of a judgment call. And also the rules of boxing aren't really, you know, like cut and dried. Like there's no rule. I mean, really, the rule in boxing is on the inside. If one hand, if if one fighter has a free hand or if, if both fighters have a free hand, you can let that go. But some officials don't want to wait that long. When you tie up at all, if any part of your body is tangled up, they're going to break you up. In, in amateur boxing, it is kind of cut and dry. Like if, if you tie up at all, like they're separating you. So it's pretty obvious how you would officiate an amateur boxing contest. But in the pros, it's just kind of up to interpretation for the referee to decide like, oh, is, is this fight fair? That's kind of, and, and if they deem it to be okay, you can get away with it. So um, yeah, it's not, there's no like referee school kind of that you go to. Um, you know, I could go and get my license here in Ontario, in Canada, and be trained by someone that officiates entirely differently than someone that it's in Nevada. And, and then I would go and officiate somewhere else. And I'd bring my interpretation of how uh, a fight ought to be officiated there. It's just totally, it's, it's up to the referee how they want to govern a fight.
1: I mean, speaking of leeway and interpretation, I was listening to a boxing historian and it used to be that when you did a count, the timer, the ringside timer person would also be involved where you're counting. And then if you look away or something happens, the ringside timer would a stopwatch would tell you where you were on the count. Yeah. Right. Yep. But that's available. You could do that, but almost no referee does that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> which means they know about it, but they have the freedom not to do that if they don't want to.
3: Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I feel like they just kind of forget, you know, they're trying, uh, they're trying to, to pick up the count and then they're warning the other fighter to get to a, nu- a neutral corner. And it's like, they forget where they were in the count. I mean, you're only counting the 10. It shouldn't be that, <laughs> you know, you can, you can remember where you were plus, yeah, you have someone on the outside telling you where you are in, in the count. Um, Yeah, I I see those mistakes made all the time. And and some people allege that there was a little bit of a long count uh, in this fight, too, that it was almost like a 14 count or something. But I didn't think there was anything particularly wrong with how Mora uh, handled that count. But yeah, I see that, too. You know, referees just not picking up the person, the official counting on the outside.
1: Now, with those knockdowns by Wilder, do you think any other heavyweight could have gotten up from those shots?
3: It's hard. I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and, and again, this is just kind of, I would say it's anecdotal, but we've seen it. I mean, we've seen fury take flush right hands from Deontay Wilder who no one else has stood up to and either walk through them or hit the canvas and got up. And again, not just got up and survived, but got up emboldened and took the fight over. like, it's almost after the two knockdowns in round four fury in round five, he starts to dominate. You know, it's it's so it wasn't as dramatic as the Undertaker sit up, but it's kind of the same thing where like after that happens, it was like okay, I and and he he described it this way after the fight too, it was like he uh, he realized in that moment, okay, I took his best shot. It's now it's time to go, you know? Like I know that I can walk through it again. I've experienced that. Now it's time for me to take this fight over. And yeah, I don't know anyone else in boxing today with those kind of recuperative powers.
1: Talking about emotions, I really did feel, and I think a lot of fans felt like, watching this fight on that night, the way Deontay Wilder looked, there was no other heavyweight that could have beaten Wilder that night other than Fury because nobody else was going to be able to get up from those shots.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, would I pick Anthony Joshua against that version of, of Deontay Wilder? I don't know. You know, like, am I certain that Alexander Usyk can eat that right hand <laughs> and and get up? Like, no, you know, like, I. So yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, the question is, like, are there other heavyweights out there who could neutralize Wilder in the way that the Fury has in the past? Maybe, but he's just such a dangerous proposition for as long as he's on his feet that like you can never be certain about a pick against Deontay Wilder. Um, now we also don't know, you know, will we see Deontay Wilder again? Like, do do. Should he fight again after that kind of beating? Like, does he have anything else left to prove? Is it dangerous for him to keep fighting? I think those are now the questions I think we'll start asking about Wilder in, in the coming weeks. But, you know, yeah, to to your point, Wilder is a, a nightmare matchup for anyone in the heavyweight division.
1: So speaking to that, where does this leave the heavyweight division?
3: So now, I mean, you have Fury effectively waiting on the result of the Anthony Joshua Alexander Usyk rematch. That really, I mean, whoever the winner of that fight is, that's the fight to make because then we would finally have an undisputed heavyweight champion who is both has all the belts, he's a lineal champion. There's no you can't make any kind of side argument about who you think is the is the champion. There would be one champion. Now, I know uh Eddie Hearn is trying to push for Fury to fight Dillian White in the interim. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I I haven't seen Fury give any indication that he's interested in that fight at all. And frankly, he he shouldn't be. I think he should wait for the result of AJ Usyk too, and then fight the winner of that in in what would be a a monstrous fight. But we're so close to having certainty in in the in the heavyweight division that I I would prefer them not do anything that might jeopardize
1: that. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about Alexander Usyk?
3: Yeah. So Alexander Usyk uh, was an Olympic gold medalist, an extraordinary amateur uh, for his home country of Ukraine, and he is trained by Vasily Lomachenko's father. So he's almost like a much bigger version of uh, Vasily Lomachenko, if if our listeners are familiar with him. Um, He's just a, a tremendously skilled... Uh, and nuanced boxer who doesn't really fight like anyone else in boxing. He is a trained dancer. He is also, uh, he's a trained actor as well. So he's (laughs) like a really kind of like goofy character who also is just really nimble in the ring and, and is fun and unique to watch. But he dominated the cruiserweight division and was the legitimate cruiserweight champion, then moved up to heavyweight. Basically took two two fights to see if he could handle the weight and then took on Anthony Joshua, whom he recently defeated to become a unified heavyweight champion. So uh, no one, uh, the only other heavyweight, uh, the only other former cruiserweight champions to move up and win a title at heavyweight after winning a title at cruiserweight are Evander Holyfield and David Hay. So people are now starting the like Holyfield and Alexander, Alexander Usyk comparisons. And the fact that that isn't absurd should tell you uh, how good Alexander Usyk is and just how extraordinary his career has been to this point.
1: As far as size, then, how big is Usyk compared to Vander Holyfield?
3: Yeah, Usyk is six three, and Holyfield he's six foot two and a half. He's taller than uh, than than Holyfield.
1: Because the heavyweights now, you got these giants like Usyk, and a lot of these people just look so small.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, which is you know like. Holyfield really wasn't a small heavyweight for his day, right? And so you think of how much boxing has changed, and how much athletes have changed in boxing just over just in that time period. You know, we're talking twenty years. Like a six a five heavyweight is kind of normal. A six a, seven a heavyweight is is big, but it's a six nine heavyweight who's ruling the division right now, right? And, and he and he can comfortably move around at nearly three hundred pounds, like. Fighters are just built different. I don't mean that in like the colloquial the uh, colloquial way that we use it now. They are literally built different. They are much bigger human beings.
1: How big was Lennox Lewis?
3: Lennox is about uh, six five, six six. Like Lennox is (laughs) a is a modern sized heavyweight, (laughs) and also an all time great. Right? Like Lennox is a guy that you can plop in any era, and physically you wouldn't have any questions about uh, how he could contend.
1: Because he was a giant in his day, which speaks to how the heavyweights were smaller back then
3: oh yeah i mean like rocky marciano like weighed in under 200 pounds <laughs> you know like joe lewis was not that big like joe lewis would probably be a, a cruiserweight today right or yeah the, the size of five, and that's also why um when we talk about like who would beat who in different eras um I think we tend to think about boxing as this sport that really hasn't evolved and that you can do these mystical matchups reasonably, but you really can't, especially when it comes to heavyweights. Um, because uh, number one, they're just so much bigger, but also just athletes are different. I mean, they have access to modern training techniques and also the knowledge of the of the way that the sport has evolved. of hundreds of years of footage to study that, that fighters before them didn't have. So I'm not saying that, uh, you know, a conclusively every modern fighter would beat a a, a a fighter from the past definitely not but especially when it comes to heavyweights like i it would be really hard to say like would joe lewis beat tyson fury like they're they're almost not in the same weight class right so it's it's really difficult to, to play uh you know to, to put them in like a fight night kind of simulation <laughs> in your mind and pick pick a winner then.
1: Yeah, I mean one thing I think everyone can agree on is the modern heavyweight will have a size advantage if nothing else.
3: If nothing else. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's uh it, sometimes a size advantage uh it can be too much to overcome. And Fury uh you know when you combine his and he has actual boxing abilities, you know, he's not like Nikolai Voluev or something like that, you know, like a, <laughs> just a gargantuan human being who can move a little bit he can move better than the smaller people that he's fighting and he's that big. So yeah, he's, uh, he's, he is something else.
1: What went wrong for Joshua in that fight with Usyk?
3: I mean, that was a fairly closely contested fight, you know, like Joshua was still winning rounds. I, I just think that he ran into a, a superior boxer who was giving him looks that he just, you know, he didn't react and adapt quite as quickly as Usyk did. I think, if we're going to get like really, really technical, I think one of the things that troubled Joshua, um, and you can simplify it by just saying it's a Southpaw. Yeah, that's one thing, but it was a Southpaw who was Alexander Usyk. And what happens when you fight a Southpaw is that for a fighter like Joshua, who likes to kind of probe with his jab and let it dangle out there and kind of do everything off of it, that jab kind of gets negated by a Southpaw. And Usyk was able to just kind of take Joshua's, hand away, his, his lead hand away, and as a result, he dictated the terms of the exchanges. So by kind of taking away Joshua's left hand, which he uses to set up everything, either to find range or to land the jab and then work combinations off of it, he wasn't the one deciding when the exchanges were starting anymore because Usyk took that away from him. And then you have a guy in Usyk who has terrific footwork and is giving you interesting angles. He's slipping inside of that jab and outside of the jab. Um, and he just didn't, you know, it was a game of chess that he, that he just didn't win and he didn't get embarrassed in that fight or anything like that. He fought a really, really good boxer, showed himself to be a very good boxer as well. Um, but maybe not a generationally great one and that's okay too.
1: How do you think Fury and Usyk match up?
3: Uh, Man, I, I, it's just so difficult to pick against Fury (laughs) for all the reasons that we've outlined. But at the same time, I, I think that Usyk really is a, he's, he's a virtuoso operator in there. And I will be fascinated to see if he can find ways to kind of dart in and out and spin around a guy like Tyson Fury, or if it's just too much, you know, because Usyk is 6'3", you know, his, his reach, I think he has like a 78 inch reach, but he's fighting a guy in Fury who has like almost like a 90 inch reach and he's 6'9" and can move a little bit, I I don't know. I mean, Usyk was given trouble by Derek Chisora because Chisora was able to maul him, who just sort of sold out and was able to to get to the inside and just kind of club him a little bit. He still won that fight, but he was uncomfortable. Fury, I think, can do that. I think Fury could take Usyk's shot. He can take Deontay Wilder's shot. He can probably take Usyk's best shot. And if Fury starts leaning on Usyk, and, and he can just kind of negate all of that fancy movement that Usyk has, uh, I, I don't know what Usyk could do. So he'd, he'd have to find a way to stay far away from Fury. But that, that ring gets mighty small when you're in there against a, an actual giant.
1: If Joshua loses the rematch, does Joshua versus Wilder make sense?
3: I, I would love to see it. I would love to see it. You know, because what we're still, number one, just it's probably the most exciting fight. It's just pure action that you could make at in, in the higher levels of the heavyweight division. Um, two guys that are a little bit, little bit vulnerable, uh, who can, who knock guys down, get knocked down, get back up. I think they match up so well stylistically in the ring. I would love to see it. And also, you know, that's just because you're not number one doesn't mean that, uh, every fight is not worthy at that point. Like what we would still be talking about is what in that instance, with the number three and the number four heavyweight in the world facing one another, that's still awesome. Right. Like it doesn't always have to be like just going for the championship or nothing else. Sometimes you can make good fights for the sake of making good fights. Um, And I think in today's boxing, sometimes that that mentality is sort of lost in just the dogged pursuit of of titles. Um, Sometimes we just don't make good fights just because they're good fights. And it, it would be nice if we did that in this instance.
1: How big is heavyweight boxing right now?
3: I mean on a global scale um I mean let's take Anthony Joshua for example right this is a guy that can sell out 70,000 seat stadiums right as there aren't too many you know forget athletes just like entertainment act that could do that on a regular basis and so Joshua as a as a sporting figure in the UK is is absolutely massive um this pay-per-view that we that we just watched that we're talking about Fury Wilder. Um I don't know how many pay-per-views it will do, but if it does, you know, five hundred thousand pay per views, that's still that's a lot of money, you know? Like these are two guys that, you know, have gross 17 million dollars at the gate. That's still big. And just anecdotally, I was noticing a lot more attention around this fight on on my timeline um than in recent years. I think people are are catching on to some of these personalities at the top of the heavyweight division there, you know, these guys are famous. It's not because for years, it was always the joke, like, ah, you know, ask anyone on the street, they don't know who the heavyweight champion is like that, that may still be true. But I think a lot more people are familiar with these four names that we've been talking about than maybe even five years ago. And so I I think that is speaking to um, a growing cachet for these fighters and, and a growing interest, I think, in the general sports public about heavyweight boxing.
1: Outside of these four, are there any other heavyweights we should note?
3: Hmm, let me think about who like, who would be interesting um I find there's some personalities that I find very interesting uh in the in the heavyweight division I think uh Michael Hunter is one of them. I find him to be um a captivating personality um he's a guy who uh his father who was also named Michael Hunter was a boxer uh, who was uh, killed by the police when he was a kid. And it's kind of shaped his worldview. And Michael Hunter, um, I, I remember I was covering, I was uh, on commentary on one of his events in uh, the Baltimore area. And I remember the morning of of the fight, just finding him down by the water, reading and doing yoga. You know, he's just like <laughs> a really interesting fighter. And it's it just like an, an interesting personality uh, with a fascinating backstory, who gave Alexander Usyk, in my opinion, his toughest test to date uh, when he was at Cruiserweight. So he could be he could be interesting. I also find Joe Joyce uh, to be very interesting as well. He's a guy who has a very varied background uh, athletically. He was uh, for a period of time an NCAA cheerleader. Uh, he was a, <laughs> he was a rugby player uh, and and uh, and a dancer. He's also a very very good artist. Like he, he has a, a fine arts degree. Um, So I find him to be a very interesting personality as well. And both of those guys, it just so happens, I don't just like them just because I find them interesting, but I think they both have a good case to be uh, among the next challengers for some of these titles that we've been talking about. So those are two guys that I'm particularly interested in, both as fighters and as people.
1: Well, all right, Corey, thank you for your time and sharing so much of your knowledge. Where can people find you?
3: So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, at at Corey underscore Erdman. So you can uh, follow me on there. Every Monday, I write the lead column for BoxingScene.com. So you can find uh, my writing on there. Uh, and I freelance a little bit. I do a lot of work for uh, for CBC here in Canada. Uh, I try when I can to kind of touch on issues that that intersect both boxing and, and society uh, and race and gender. Um, just because I, I find boxing a lot more interesting than just what goes on in the ring. As fascinating as what goes on in the ring is, I try to touch on those things. And uh, I'm also a commentator. So you'll, you'll find me quite often calling fights. Uh, I do a lot of work for, for ESPN and ESPN Plus and Box Nation in, in the UK. Um, so if you turn on a fight on the weekend, I might be calling that as well. So uh, there are lots of places to find me.
2: Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.
3: South Pulse. Hit him
2: with the left. South
3: Pulse.
2: Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.